All right, well, happy MLK weekend, uh, my friends. Uh, this morning, we're going to reflect a little bit on the life of MLK uh, and his legacy. And uh, because we're in a sermon series called Who is Jesus? We're, of course, going to reflect on the life and legacy of Jesus and what it means for us to be followers of Jesus. And then um, we're going to spend a little time reflecting on, like, what do we what do we do with these two examples. Um, what do we do as followers of Jesus with these examples of, of people like MLK and um, how, do, how do they encourage us to move forward in, in light of that? I do all of this recognizing that outside of my new office window is a giant mural of MLK staring at me and just over my shoulder here is Jesus staring at me. Uh, so this feels like a rather daunting task with both of these staring at me, um, but we'll move forward regardless. Uh -huh. <laughs> So uh, as we get ready now uh, to, to turn and wrestle with the scriptures, uh, would you join me in a word of prayer? Loving God, uh, I'm grateful that on a morning where um, uh, I'm in my office by myself, uh, uh, that I'm not by myself. Uh, I'm grateful that as I, I sit here staring at my computer that I see um, the faces of my sisters and brothers staring back at me. Um, uh, what a gift uh, in this strange and bizarre season that we find ourselves in that um, despite the fact that we're isolated, we can still be together. So thank you, God, for that. Thank you that your spirit uh, is here uh, among us uh, in our own spaces, but also somehow divinely drawing us together uh, to make um, the body of Christ that is expressed here at First Mennonite. And so, God, now as we uh, turn to the scriptures and wrestle with them, uh, we, we yield ourselves to your spirit and ask that your spirit would lead us, guide us, shape us, and form us more and more into the image of Jesus. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. On April 16th, 1963, uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. penned a letter that would eventually be known as Letter from Birmingham Jail. This letter from Birmingham jail was an open letter that was in response to yet another open letter uh, that was published in the, the Birmingham uh, um, newspaper uh, entitled A Call for Unity from Eight White Clergy Members. These eight white clergy uh, were uh, penning their frustrations with um, quote-unquote outsiders who were coming into their city and causing a disturbance and a ruckus. <laughs> Um, now, the best that I've been able to um, kind of interpret the events that were happening there, um, this word outsider was a bit of what we might call like a, a dog whistle term, uh, a term that's uh, a bit covert, that's meant for only certain groups to be able to understand. And uh, it seems as though MLK found himself <laughs> understanding what was being said. Because when they say outsider, um, it, it called to mind uh, this other term that was being used for people like MLK and those in the civil rights movement. Uh, and that's the term outside agitators. Um, they were, they were, these were folks who were coming into cities where there was this injustice around civil rights. And they would lead these like uh, nonviolent campaigns and these demonstrations. And as a result, like they caused all sorts of disturbances and all sorts of ruckuses within the city. And this is what was happening in Birmingham because, well, MLK has now found himself in jail as a result of the actions. And so um, 
someone uh, was able to slip MLK uh, a copy of the newspaper while he was in jail. And as he read it, uh, he began to write his own open letter response on the very margins of the same newspaper that had this rebuttal against him, which, as a side note, I don't know about you, but that feels like one of the most boss moves ever, right? <laughs> so when we get to the letter itself, um, we see that these uh, eight white clergy have called uh, the actions of MLK and his co-conspirators um, unwise and untimely. And we get the sense that for these eight white clergy, they thought that these things would kind of work themselves out. Um, if we just kind of let things uh, move as they do, uh, eventually we'll get to a place where there can be things like justice. Eventually we can get to a place where like, we can get all this kind of worked out and feel good being together, all those sorts of things. But MLK and his rebuttal uh, comes to uh, perhaps some of the most famous words of MLK, where he describes why like, they, couldn't, they couldn't just sit by and let this happen. And he, he pens, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught up in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Again, some of the most famous words of MLK. I'm sure you've heard them. I'm sure they will flood your social media tomorrow. But we often stop there. And I actually think that the very next line is perhaps the most compelling of all of this. Because again, with this idea of being an outside agitator in his mind, he writes, never again can we afford to live with the narrow provincial outside agitator idea. See, for MLK, because injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, there is no such thing as an outside agitator because justice over, injustice over here affects justice over here. And so wherever we see injustice, we must act because injustice anywhere then becomes a, th a threat to justice everywhere. He would go on uh, just a few lines later in that, that same section of the letter to write, You deplore the demonstrations taking place in Birmingham, but your statement, I'm sorry to say, fails to express a similar concern for the conditions that brought about the demonstrations. I'm sure that none of you would want to rest content with the superficial kind of social analysis that deals merely with the effects and does not grapple with the underlying causes. It is unfortunate that the demonstrations are taking place in Birmingham, but it is even more unfortunate that the city's white power structure left the Negro community with no alternative. From there, uh, MLK would go on to describe um, the goals of a nonviolent campaign and the demonstrations that they were taking place and describe why it was and how it was that they got to the place where this needed to happen. See, for MLK and, again, his, his fellow co-conspirators in the civil rights movement, things had gotten to a place where um, to respond with inaction and apathy was no longer appropriate. Um, but things had gotten to a place where the only sort of faithful response forward was one of action and agitation. <laughs> and it seems that for MLK and, again, his co-conspirators, that they had a really good precedent for this, this impulse towards action and agitation because it seems as though they were following in the very footsteps of Jesus, who from time to time throughout his life most certainly could have been described as an agitator, <laughs> and perhaps most uh, specifically and especially within the story that we see taking place in John chapter 2. Uh, this is a passage that's often referred to as Jesus cleansing the temple. <laughs> 
And the story begins with uh, Jesus approaching the temple uh, near the Passover. Now, the Passover was this major sort of holiday, this major sort of celebration for the Jewish people. Uh, it was a, um, a day in which they remembered God's exodus, God's liberation, God's deliverance of them as a people from their enslavement to the Egyptians. And so uh, it, it, it was like one of these like monumental, like, this is who we are sort of people kind of holiday. So for us as Christians, think about like Easter and Christmas. Like these are like the pinnacle sort of holidays for us, right? And it would have been the same sort of way for, for Jewish folk. Um, and in fact, it was such a major holiday that it was a, a pilgrimage sort of holiday, which meant that, that all able-bodied Jews uh, would make this like holy sort of journey into the holy city of Jerusalem to be with fellow Jews to celebrate this act of liberation from God. Now, part of the, the festivities uh, and part of the way that they would celebrate the Passover involved uh, sacrifices. But this gets tricky because uh, part of offering a sacrifice meant that the animal had to be like perfect. <laughs> it had to be without injury, it had to be without spot or blemish. But if you're walking like hundreds of miles by foot, how are you supposed to get an animal that was once perfect to Jerusalem and still have it be perfect? You probably can't, right? <laughs> and so uh, there began to be this good practice of like uh, offering animals for sale in the temple court. So you could come to Jerusalem without animal and then purchase an animal there so that you could sacrifice it. But there was also another dilemma of you have people from out the region coming into Jerusalem with all of their various currencies and the only sort of currency that was acceptable within the temple was the Jewish currency. And so, well, now if you don't have Jewish currency and you need Jewish currency, then you need some way of converting your currency into Jewish currency. So we see this good practice of money changers being in the temple so that now you can offer financial offerings or you can purchase an animal for an animal sort of offering and sacrifice. See, all of this started out as like a good sort of practice, right? Even, we might even say like a necessary sort of practice so that people, as they are coming to the temple, can participate and access the life of God that's taking place in the temple. And yet, over time, what started out as a good and necessary practice had, begin to, had begun to become like perverted in some way. And so rather than just simply selling animals, we can imagine that people began to think like, well, maybe I can make a little bit of a profit off of this, right? And so we'll throw out an imaginary number. Instead of selling uh, an animal for $100, well, maybe I can sell it for like 120 and pocket that 20 and make a little bit of profit off of this, right? Or we can begin to think about how people began to uh, approach money changing. Well, we could do a simple one-to-one -one sort of transaction here. Or we could set up some transaction fees and I can pocket that and walk away with a little bit of profit, right? And so what started out as like a, a, a practice for pilgrims had been perverted and transformed into now like a practice for profit, all within this context of people trying to access the life of God. Um, now, we have... a. a um, uh, now, as we think about the, the, this practice that had become perverted and begun to exploit people and had begun to, to be a barrier from accessing the life of God, who would you imagine that this affects the most? The poor, right? Because everything seems to affect the poor the most, right? And so you, you, you have 
actually probably the predominant or the pr- primarily most of the Jewish population coming and trying to access the life of God and having to like wrestle with the dilemma of like, if I choose to exchange my money, if I choose to purchase an animal to participate in this life of God in the temple, I'm going to put myself further and further into debt. Or I can choose not to put myself further into debt, but then I am prevented from accessing the life of God in the temple. Uh, see, in some ways, the, the practices that were happening outside of the temple were like modern payday uh, loan places. Uh, if you drive through the city, you see these all over the place, right? In theory, it feels like a good idea. If you are strapped for cash and you're, you're not getting paid till the end of the week, let me give you an advance on it, right? But again, this very practice had be- has become perverted where now there are astronomical sorts of interest rates. And while you were once strapped for cash, you are now even more strapped for cash with interest only growing and building. And so um, Jesus comes to the temple. He sees this practice that has become perverted. He sees this exploitation taking place. He sees these barriers that have been constructed that prevent access from the life of God. And wouldn't you know it, we have a word that describes all of this. (laughs) And that's the word injustice. When Jesus comes to the temple, the very sort of like dwelling place of God on earth, Jesus witnesses all of this injustice taking place. And so uh, as a result, we see Jesus getting a little feisty here. (laughs) This is no longer like Jesus meek and mild. This isn't like... Jesus that makes us feel warm and fuzzy on the inside, but this is Jesus who makes a whip. (laughs) He chases the animals out of the the temple court with it. And then after he chases the the animals out of the temple court, uh, we come to a really strange sort of detail in the story. In verse 16, John tells us that that Jesus turns and he, he tells those who were selling doves, take these things out of here. It's interesting because there were all sorts of animals being sold in the temple court. Why did Jesus turn specifically towards those who were selling doves? See, within the the Jewish law were all of these um, prescriptions and provisions for like how to participate in the sacrificial system, how to access the life of God through sacrifices. And throughout these details, we were called to like participate using like the prime choice animals, the best of the best. And yet, with most of these, there are provisions for those recognizing that some may not be able to purchase the most prime cut of animal. There's provisions baked within the very system for the poor. And for the poor, rather than having to spend all of this money on an animal, there were these exceptions for them to uh, purchase doves. Which means that these dove sellers here are explicitly like the ones taking advantage of the poor. Which is why Jesus stops and turns directly to them, tells them to get their stuff out of there, and says to stop making my father's house a marketplace. Stop making a profit off of the poor in my father's house. (laughs) Now the story ends with uh, a bit of an explanation for all of this, right? Uh, Some of uh, Jesus' fellow Jews approach him and they're like, "Um, you have some explaining to do? Can you tell us why you did all of this? And Jesus says, The sign that I will give you is destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. And obviously, like, they're not understanding what's happening because they're like, Jesus, it's taken us 46 years to, like, get to this point. Like, you think you can do it in three days? 
And of course, it's the Gospel of John, so nothing's quite as straightforward as it seems. And John gives us a big wink here in verse 21. He says, But Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. See, it seems that in this story, Jesus is trying to, in some way, transfer the place where we access the life of God from this physical building into Jesus' body itself. So that if we want to come and participate, and if we want to come and access the life of God, it's no longer through this building, but it's in this body. It's a strange story. Uh, it's one that, uh, like Celia said, if you're you're tired, can just kind of make you feel weary. If you're like you know feeling real justicey, it can make you go rah rah, right? Um, but it's it's a story nonetheless that we find in all four of our gospels. And yet, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's found at the end of the story of the Gospels. But for John, it's located at the very beginning. Which raises a question of, like, why does John place the, the story of Jesus here within the broader story of Jesus? If you've ever been to Cedar Point, uh, you know that on, like, the, particularly the big rides, uh, after they do the safety check and make sure that you're not going to go, like, hurling out of your cart uh, on a hill... Um, somebody will come over like an old school Backstreet Boys microphone and like mumble their way through like a description of the ride. And they'll say like, uh, welcome to the Millennium Force. Uh, you're about to hit heights of 310 feet and go uh, up to like 93 miles an hour. Why did they engage in this practice? Uh, to give you a heads up of what to expect and to get you really excited for what's to come, Right. And I think that this is why John moves the story not from, or moves the story from the end of Jesus's life to the very beginning, so that for those of us who are reading the life of Jesus can have a glimpse of what's to come and can get ourselves really excited for what's ahead. Because what Jesus seems to be doing here is transferring the access the place where we access the life of God into his body. And then what we see from this point on is Jesus becoming an agitator to those around him. In an attempt to remove, to dismantle, to um, break down these barriers that stand in the way from everyday people accessing the life of God. And I think that um, what this story uh, can communicate to those of us who are attempting to follow Jesus some 2,000 years later is that when it comes to um, practices of um, exploitation, when it comes to situations of injustice, Rather than apathy, I think we actually need agitation. <laughs> because I think in the face of injustice, uh, when we respond with apathy, I think apathy actually caters to, to the oppressors and oppression. But in the face of injustice, if we choose not apathy but agitation, agitation doesn't um, cater to oppression, uh, oppressors and oppression but agitation actually confounds oppressors and oppression. Because rather than just continuing on with the way that things are, these unjust systems and structures, when we choose to be an agitator, we act like a cog in the wheel that causes everything to kind of come to a screeching halt. And now those who are doing the oppression, the oppressing have to like actually stop and uh, recognize what it is that they're doing. 
But more than that, for everybody who's watching this, everybody who's been participating in these unjust systems, whether they recognize them being unjust or not, now have to like take a, a hardcore look and recognize like, why are we doing what we're doing? Like this system doesn't actually work for everybody. And now we have to actually begin to analyze and uh, reflect upon our own sort of participation within these unjust systems and structures. See, it seems that like to follow Jesus is in some ways to like follow this particular way of being an agitator. <laughs> um, and I think that that part's really key because to, to follow Jesus in the way of agitation doesn't mean that like when we, we want to be an agitator, it doesn't mean that anything can go. Because that doesn't mean that we can like participate in like forms of violence. It doesn't mean that we can take oppressors and now oppress them. But to follow Jesus in the way of agitation means that like we follow him as he is an agitator. And we see that that's like nonviolent. Um, that his agitation and any sort of aggression that we see isn't directed at people, but it's, it's directed to practices and policies. And in some ways it seems that to, um, to be an agitator... Uh, is like actually a means of peace. Uh, you know, when we, we talk about peace, uh, us good Midwesterners who avoid conflict at all costs, us Mennonites who, who love to talk about peace, uh, I think unfortunately when we talk about peace, we, also, we often talk about peacekeeping. Uh, meaning like we, we choose a position of neutrality. Uh, meaning like we, we choose not to rock the boat. <laughs> And in many cases, we actually choose, like, apathy. This is my approach, by the way, when it comes to working out conflict with toddlers. Uh, over Christmas, uh, Pax got to spend a lot of time with his four-year-old cousin, Titus. And um, uh, they, they spent so much time playing together, and they had a really good time. But inevitably, they would start screaming. Uh, and I would look around, and I was the only adult present, which is, like, always my biggest fear. And so I realized I have to, like, address this, right? So Pax can't, you know, communicate his feelings at this point. And so I said, Titus, what's going on? He's like, I've been playing with this toy for a really long time and Pax wants it. Well, okay. So now I enter in as negotiator and I say, well, Titus, you've been playing with this for a long time and Pax would like a turn. I turn to Pax and I say, Pax, Titus has been playing with this for a long time and it's, it's his toy so he can choose how to respond in this moment. And I hope that it works itself out. Does it ever work itself out? Absolutely not. Never with toddlers and never with people and never with these geopolitical situations that we find ourselves in, right? So fortunately, Jesus doesn't call us to be peacekeepers. Jesus calls us to be peacemakers. And peacemaking is so incredibly different than peacekeeping because peacemaking involves, um, well, it involves rocking the boat from time to time. It may actually involve taking sides from time to time. And it may involve being an agitator from time to time. The late Archbishop Desmond Tutu once said, If you are neutral in situations of injustice, you've chosen the side of the oppressor. If an elephant has its foot on the tail of a mouse and you say that you are neutral, the mouse will not appreciate your neutrality. <laughs> See, peace is more than just the absence of conflict. But peace is the presence of things like justice. Peace is the presence of things like wholeness. Peace is the presence of things like equity. And peace is, um, to use a, a biblical term, the presence of 
Shalom. So on this uh, MLK uh, sun, er, weekend, as we sit with this, this story of Jesus um, being an agitator, um, perhaps we need to ask ourselves, who are those among us who are facing barriers from accessing the life of God? Um, perhaps uh, we can call to mind uh, our sisters and brothers of color who... Um, from the way that I understand history, like 400 years now, um, have experienced the weight, the knee, if you will, of unjust systems and structures pressed upon their necks while they are crying out, we can't breathe. Because you know, it's hard to access the life of God if you can't even access your very own life. Uh, perhaps uh, we, could, we could call to mind uh, LGBTQ folks who, um, having come to, to grips with who they are and how they're wired, um, have far too often been um, uh, excluded from their families, their friends, their loved ones, their communities. Uh, and unfortunately, far too often, even the community of Jesus itself. Uh, this place where, like, is one of the primary places where we can come to access the life of God. Perhaps uh, we could even call to mind uh, our sisters uh, within the church who um, are given so many incredible gifts and talents and passions, and yet far too often these gifts and talents and passions have been squelched just simply because of the fact that they are women. <laughs> or perhaps we could even think about ourselves and the fact that there was something that happened to us in our past, some sort of trauma, perhaps it was some sort of toxic theology, some sort, or perhaps it was some sort of like toxic understanding of what it means to be human. And as a result, we sit with this understanding that we are unworthy or incapable of love and belonging and acceptance. And again, it's hard to access the life of God if you feel like your life isn't even worth, um, if you have nothing in your life to contribute. So who are the, the people among us who are facing barriers from accessing the life of God? And what does it mean to be an agitator in the midst of that? Because we recognize that um, apathy isn't a luxury that those who are experiencing barriers and injustice have. So my friends, my prayer for us is that um, we would have the courage to follow Jesus and that we would have the courage to um, be peacemakers uh, and that we could follow this example that we have of MLK and the other civil rights leaders um, and being agitators in the process <laughs> to dismantle and to deconstruct these barriers that prevent some from accessing the life of God. Let's pray. God, we're grateful uh, for the story of Jesus. Uh, we're grateful for uh, not just the story of Jesus that, that reveals who you are, um, but that we're grateful for all of these individual stories of Jesus too. Um, we're grateful for this particular story of Jesus that shows your heart um, for all people being able to access uh, you and the life that you offer to us. God, we're also grateful for um, the witness of, of people like uh, 
Martin Luther King and the ways that they uh, attempt to follow Jesus given the particular context that they find themselves in. God, may we have the courage to, to follow Jesus. Um, may we have the courage to be agitators from time to time <laughs> and step in and participate in uh, the ways that your kingdom is coming on earth as it is in heaven. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.